And Father, we ask that you would give us understanding from your word. We pray that you would meet us in our hour of need and help us understand what this means and to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Our passage today describes a revival. There's a spiritual awakening going on in Israel, and in particular in Judah and Jerusalem here. And as this spiritual awakening comes, before we even look at the text, I, I just, I got to ask the question, what, what is a revival? So a, a revival, as we've come to understand it, is not sort of a, a, a weekend meeting where we tell you to come and get revived. A revival is not something that happens in just one church, and it's not happen, it does not happen according to a calendar that we say, come to the revival meetings. A revival is an act of God. Neither is it a, a new evangelistic strategy where we come up with new ways to make Christ approachable to people and we, we teach you to go out and, and do personal evangelism in such a way that people are revived. There's nothing wrong, of course. We should be, all of us, carrying evangelism with us and a, an explanation of the gospel, right? But a revival is not a man-made structure whereby we come up with a new program. A revival is a movement of God in time whereby the people of God are changed by the, the power of his spirit. If, if we could turn to one place where a revival is described, it would be Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. And that's where the, the scriptures say, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will cleanse their land. So, uh, heal their land. So, really, there's seven things there, and the whole message isn't about defining revival, so I'm going to tell them to you rather quickly. But if you want to just jot in your notes, if you're taking notes, that really this is described in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. Uh, In the people of God... A revival is a supernatural thing where we, we know that we belong to God. We are his and he is ours. Where we uh, humble ourselves before him, where we pray to him, where we seek his face. And I can't emphasize that enough. So much of me seeking God's face right now in my life is me seeking God's hand in my life meaning I want what he can give me, I don't necessarily want him. So we make a distinction there and realize that if there's going to be revival in the land, it's going to be a supernatural movement where all of God's people are seeking his face, not just his hand. And we turn from our wicked ways. It's interesting that we live in a land where there's a lot of darkness and difficulty. But if there's going to be revival, it's not about what's going to happen out there. It's about what's happening in here. A revival is when God's people turn to him profoundly and admit where we are wrong. We, God's people, turn from our wicked ways. So that's kind of what what happens in a revival in God's people. And then what God does for his people is that he will hear. In In a fresh, powerful way, he hears when we turn to him. We, we know that he's forgiven our sin. And we're going to look, there's a portion in this passage that speaks to your heart and mind. and says, do you know that your sin is forgiven? Do you know it for sure? Are you walking like that's true? 
And so he hears from heaven and he forgives our sin and he heals our land. But there are literally ways in which God heals the land around his, his people when revival comes. After all of the great revivals in history, there is a season of productivity where God's people are serving the needs of the poor, where God is giving blessing on the crops, where, where God's people are starting hospitals and serving the people around them and caring for the people around them. And so uh, the time after revival is profoundly uh, productive time. So all that to say, as we consider, as Bennett has already shared with us, the, the uh, Reformation, we also consider other great moments in history where revivals came. I'm going to read from you Jonathan Edwards in the first half of the 1700s, the first half of the 18th century. There was a great revival called the Great Awakening before we were founded as a, uh, a country. So it was in 1733, 1734. And Jonathan Edwards described the Great Awakening like this. It pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity. Now, let me just stop there. As we described uh, revival, can I just say that um, the people who were revived here uh, thought they revived. You know what I'm saying there? They had a profession, but it was a cold and lifeless profession. And that's not to say that people, people do convert at this time. They come to faith at the, at the time of a revival. But oftentimes it is within the people of God and then the expansion of people of God that, that he's at work most in a season of revival. So the people turn from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity to the lively exercise of every Christian grace and the powerful practice of our holy religion. And before we turn to the text today, I've got to answer this question too. Should we expect revival in our time? We should. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the time leading up to this revival was characterized by the people of God who were away from him, who were cold, who were indifferent, who needed a touch of his spirit, a touch from his word, touch from him himself, to come and revive us. And so absolutely we should expect this. If we read, uh, there's going to be revival at some point in the future. It's very clear that there's there's prophecy all through scriptures about that. And so yes, my friends, we should be thinking and praying and hoping and and waiting for God to send revival uh, in our lifetime to us. And so with that said, when God brings this revival, his word is going to be central. So that's number one. When God brings revival, his word is going to be central. Take a look at verse one. And all the people gathered, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe, now I'm going to stop there. A couple things that are really interesting already. All the people gathered as one man. And so I want you to note all the times in verses 1 through 12 when the phrase, all the people, is mentioned. The people in general are referenced 13 times, and all the people together are referenced nine times. So if there is a key player in these first uh, 12 verses of Nehemiah chapter 8, it's the people. And we should pay attention when, when a key player is... 
right? So this story that we're reading, this narrative, is about all the people and what was happening to all the people. So all the people gathered together. Note that they gathered not in the temple. The temple was completed and ready, but they gathered out in the town square. In fact, they gathered rather far from the temple. They had to build a whole big edifice for this day that they were coming to. So here's Ezra. He's been preparing himself and gathering himself for this moment when he was going to be able to teach the people. He's really been getting ready. In fact, um, well, let, let, me, let me say this first before we talk about Ezra. What would you ask for? What would you ask for if we, the people of God, were coming together and saying, okay, now inspire us. It's going to be a hard next road. We need the word you know, spoken to us. But these people had a corporate desire for God's word. That's what they wanted. In verses 1 through 3, they wanted God's word. They did not ask for a new blog entry. They did not ask for a Facebook post. They did not ask for someone in com- coming up and saying, now we've read the word. Now let me just tell you some things about the word. Listen, we are in a day when everybody has an opinion about the word. But can I tell you that all the people gathered with one heart, and you know what they said? Bring us the word. Bring us the word of God. Not a Twitter post. Not a little, a little part of it. These people we're going to see were willing to stand for six hours in the sun listening to the word of God read to them for hour after hour after hour. They were hungry for the word of God. You? This week on, on Facebook, there is a, and I'm not going to go into all of it, but basically there is a, a post out there about somebody who said something about the word and, and it pertained especially to, to marriage. And the, the responses to it, I have, was amazed at. Because everybody I saw responding to it did not respond with the word of God. They responded with, well, my reading, my understanding, my, my, the way I'm putting together the logic behind that. Well, I'll take one attribute of God and say, if God is loving, then this must be true. If God is, is just, this must be true. But guys, you and I need to be students of the word. Aren't we, we living in a day that is starved for the word of God. And so we as a congregation, and, and certainly Nehemiah, in Nehemiah's day, Ezra comes before them and the people say, look, no more, no more uh, inferences, no more logic, no more little quips, no more just portions. We need the word of God in its entirety read to us. Look at verse 1. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded to Israel. Two things are interesting there. It's the book of the law of Moses, meaning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy was intact. They had a copy of the Pentateuch that they could turn to. And number two, they had received it as the authoritative word of God already at this point. They had the word, and they knew it was authoritative over them. And because it was on a big scroll, nobody, nobody carried it around like you and I carried it around. So they were dependent on remembering what was told to them week after week after week. Very few people had a scroll that they had and, and that they could open up in their homes. It just wasn't done. And so they came and they said to, to Ezra, Ezra, we need the word. Now listen, in the days leading up to time of 
renewal, a time of spiritual awakening, revival. You know what Ezra had been doing? He'd been preparing himself. He'd been getting ready for this moment. In Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, listen, I'm going to read this to you because this is what Ezra was doing while the people were building and building the wall and getting ready. Here he was. He was the priest. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. He was ready. And and you can be ready too. Can I just say this? You don't have to wait for revival to love and study the word of God. That is not at all the heartbeat of what we're looking at here today. So Ezra studied the law of the Lord. He gave himself over to it. And uh, let me read it again. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. That's my favorite. Because if we're going to teach others in our congregation, friends around us, we're going to teach others what the word of the Lord says, we're going to have to have done it. We're going to have to know it, so we study, and then we're going to have to do it. If you're going to have a platform from which to teach your children what the word of the, God's, what the, word of the Lord says, you're going to have a better platform if it's true in your life. If you're screaming at your kids one moment and then trying to teach them the word of God the next moment, we are, we are not seeing consistency. And that's not to say if you screamed at your kids this week that that's the unforgivable sin. Uh, no, you're probably normal at that point. But what your kids as they grow up are seeing is less, less, less of that because you're dedicating yourself to know the word and what's happening is you're dedicating yourself to do it. And that's what Ezra had dedicated himself to do. And then finally, and to teach the statutes and the rules to Israel as well. Guys, Ezra was all ready for this moment. He'd been praying and asking and preparing himself to get ready and asking the Lord to send revival so that when the people came and said, okay, Ezra, bring out the word of God. Bring out the word of God. The people with one voice cried out and they have this corporate desire for God's word and they say bring the word and look at verse 3 all the people had gathered in verse 1 and in verse 3 all the people listened to the word now can I say one more thing before we move on to this next point they heard the word of God and asked for the word of God even when their life was not perfect you say well they finished the temple they finished the walls I mean, this is a big moment to celebrate, isn't it? Yes, but let me just say a few things to you about that. Number one, the walls that they had put back up were far smaller and and made a far smaller Jerusalem than the walls that had been knocked down. So the temple was not nearly as nice. They went from this palatial, beautiful, ornate temple to one that was built in just a, a short time period. Uh, they rebuilt these walls around the city in... Uh, 53, 52 day, 54 days. So this is like a two-month. We, we built it quick. We want to get this done. Okay? Most of their friends did not come back with them, so they were a lot smaller group of people. They didn't have Jerusalem. Keep in mind, Persia still reigned over Jerusalem. They had given them permission to go back and take over the city. They had a governor in Nehemiah, but the reality was they were still under the authority of a, 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 for, a foreign sovereign. They served another king. Things were not exactly how they hoped they would be or dreamed they would be. And you know what? People didn't look at what they didn't have. They didn't look at what they used to have. They came before the Lord and said, bring the word, because we can't believe in his grace what we have. 
that's your heart? So humbled in this moment, at this place in your life, by what you have. And you have stopped accounting for all the things that you used to have. And you're even learning how to stop accounting for all the things you wish you had. And in this moment, just saying, oh Lord, we have your word. It's a beautiful thing. His word will be central. It's not only there's this corporate desire, but look at this response. They they have this corporate respect for God's word that is amazing. Verse 4, and Ezra and the scribes stood on a wooden platform that they had made. So look at that. They were getting ready for the first day of the seventh month for a long time because they had to build a wooden platform. They had to get the guys together and come up with some edifice. And again, they chose not to do it in the temple. They chose to do it out in the city. It's a, an amazing thing. And so they, uh, they, they were getting ready. And then down at the end, excuse me, at the beginning of verse 5, Ezra opened the book. And now here we have the sight of all the people. We had all the people gathered. We have all the people listening. And now we have all the people watching. And they're watching what's going to happen as Ezra gets up on this wooden edifice far above all the people and he, he breaks the, the cord around the scroll and he starts to open it. And as he starts to open it, every eye was fixed on him. And at that moment, verse 5 says, everybody stood up at the same time. They revered the word. Verse 6. Now, that's not to say they worshiped the word. They worshipped, they were thankful that they had a word from God. They didn't worship the scroll. They were thankful that God had spoken to them, and they, they stood up in honor of the fact that, that Ezra was reading that very word to them. Verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord. Can we stop there? Ezra prayed. If you're going to come to a knowledge of the word of God, you're not just going to flip through it flippantly and turn to places and again, go to Facebook or go to various places and hear nice colloquial, colloquialisms about the word. You, you're going to study the word in a purposeful, systematic way. And before you open it to study it, you're going to go to the Lord in prayer and say, Okay, Lord, my head would turn away from this. My heart would twist this. My eyes would, would not see this. And so I need your help today. Don't miss the fact that Ezra blessed the Lord before he read the word. Do you think that he thought about creation? you think he thought about Genesis chapter 12? He makes a covenant. You will be a blessing to the nations. I don't know what he prayed in that prayer, but I know that he prayed and asked that the Lord would be good and gracious to help them to understand what the word says. And Ezra blessed the Lord, verse 6, and uh, the people answered. So now all the people answered. So they've gathered, and they've listened, and they've seen, and now they're all answering together with one voice. Amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. See, all the people, there's three ways I see they responded as the word is taught to them. Uh, one way is that they, uh, they lifted their hands. And I think there's a sense in which they were saying, I'm participating in this. I need this I've been waiting to hear the word. They lifted up their voice and said, amen, amen. And you know the words amen are not just something, you know, people from the prior generation say at various moments at your family functions. 
they're, they're also, they mean something. They mean, so let it be as the Lord has ordained. So, so let this, these things be as God has willed. Let it be. All right? And so let it be is what the, the idea here is. They're saying, look, look, these 150 years, these, all these years since we left Jerusalem. Guys, do you remember Jeremiah 29, 11? Do you remember that God told us that he has good plans for our future? We have lived terrible years, hard years, families broken apart, no connection to Jerusalem. We have had a, a generations of, of cutting, being cut off. And now in our day, we are seeing this reality come to be that God is restoring us in Jerusalem. And we don't own the city, but we're in the city. And we don't have a great temple, but we have a temple. And so look at how God has brought these plans to be. We used to be a large people, but we were so mediocre with our commitment to Christ, with our commitment to God. We were so bad. We were so lukewarm. And now we are a small people, but you know what this small people has learned? The word of the Lord is powerful. God is good. We are not seeking his hand. We're seeking his face together. And so there's a profound movement, even as God has made this great people small, this great city little, this great temple small, and he brought them to this place where they say, but, but look what you've done. You have kept your word. You promised us in Jeremiah 29 there was going to be future that was going to be characterized by your blessing. And look, here it is. Here it is. This corporate respect for God's word and all the people as they're assembling, they, they see that God is doing a, a good thing and they've developed, again, uh, they've brought with them all the kids and anyone who could understand. And again, now in verse 6, this response that they have, this response of hands raised and voices raised. And look, they have faces to the ground. I believe that's talking about just a, a humility before the Lord. Not my way. I'm, I'm done with my mental uh, efforts in terms of me trying to interpret the word so that I can live my life and sin and, and do the thing I want to do. I'm done with all that. I am just totally undone before you, Lord, letting your word be your word. And there's humility and there's repentance. Left behind were their cold and lifeless forms, as Edwards would call it. And now they have this life that is coming. Guys, there is a movement going on here as they bring God's word into the center of the people. And that's where we long it to be, for it to be here. We don't have to wait for a revival moment for many of us to be devoting ourselves to the word of the Lord. And that's our heart, that we would be devoting ourselves to the, to the word of the Lord, that we would have this corporate respect and that we would have this corporate response together to what God is doing in our place. Guys, uh, when you know what the word of God says, and you are certain, and you have a conviction of heart about what it says, you will stand on it and for the ways of the Lord. And so we talked again about Luther, and I can't help but going back to April 1521. It was the Diet of Worms. And at the Diet of Worms, the, the existing church called Luther in and said, look, all this teaching about justification by faith, and he, he was teaching about justification by faith. He was believing what Romans says. He was believing that, that it could not be by works, but had to be of grace that we are saved. 
And he was starting to stand on these principles. And the, this poor peasant reformer was just committed to the word of God. And where the church differed from the word of God, he had the audacity to stand on the word of God rather than to go with the church at the, of the day. And so Eck calls him in and says, uh, Dr. Luther, will you recant? And Martin Luther says this, Your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced by error, excuse me, unless I am convinced of error by the testimony of scripture, or since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves by manifest reasoning from the word. I stand convinced by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand, and I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Luther was just confident in God's word. Are you? No matter what the culture says, no matter what a a current great book says, you're back to Scripture. You're confident in Scripture. You're learning Scripture. So uh, when God brings revival, his word will be central. And secondly, uh, his joy will be our strength. You know, revival is a strengthening of God's people, not a weakening of God's people. And so God is going to strengthen us. And, and let me just say, as we, as we finalize that and move into this point, there was, a, there was a, a learning and a growing of what the Word says in the scene here in Nehemiah chapter 8. So Nehemiah, up on this big edifice, would read the Word. Look at verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. The word clearly means there they broke it down. They, they chopped it up so that people could get it into bite-sized pieces. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. If you look back at verse 7, there's these guys there. and the end of verse 7 with the Levites, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Here's my reading of that. Ezra stands up, reads the word, step, steps back, takes a break, and all of these small group leaders come out in the, in the group and say, okay, guys, you got this? You got this? You understand what we've been saying here? This passage is really important. So Genesis chapter 1, you've got to understand God created. You understand what that, the implication for that for your life? And they had guys all over the place, 12, 13, 14 people, all over going out to, into the group to make sure that everybody didn't just hear it, but they understood what it said and then how to do it in their lives. And so they had these 12 or 13 people coming right up and be like, you got this? Everything's good? So he's totally explaining it to make sure that everybody left that assembly understanding not only what the word said, but also what it meant and how to apply it to their lives. So that is the scene. And then they would take a little bit break and be like, okay, 1 o'clock, we're starting again. All right, 1 o'clock. So here we go. Ezra's back up there reading another big chunk of scripture and explaining it to people and getting them to understand it. Okay, all that brings us to verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, 
This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So guys, we're emphasizing here the joy of the Lord is our strength. And as the people understood the word, they began to weep. You know what I wonder? If there wasn't a time when Ezra came to Leviticus chapter 26. He's reading them the law, right? He's reading them Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus 26, maybe he read this to them. If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes, makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, and your enemies shall eat what you planted. Maybe he was over in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 and and following. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be in the basket and your kneading bowl. Excuse me. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and your young flock, and he goes on from there. Who wouldn't cry? Who wouldn't weep when we we think about this? We are God's people. We are meant to be a blessing to the world. According to Genesis chapter 12, he established his covenant with us and told us that if we did not adhere to his covenant, there was going to be a curse coming to us. He told us that. Who would not be on their face before the Lord weeping at all of the things we didn't do that we should have done and all of the things we haven't been doing that we should be doing as a people? And listen, weeping is a good place for revival to start. But we cannot remain in our condition of weeping. Don't stay there. Do we start there? Sure. We start there. But, but we come to this place where we ask ourselves, what is the joy of the Lord and how do I get the joy of the Lord? How do I possess it? How is it mine? Right? And so that is the question on the table right now for you and for me. I mean, we're broken before the Lord. Look what we've done. We're undone before him. We are guilty. But the teachers of the law come and say, okay, guys, I get that that you would start here, but we want you to know some things. And so here's some things I jotted down that are true uh, about the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is a full recognition of your sin and God's forgiveness of it. God forgives sins. My friend, I don't know what you did in your past. And I don't know what you think of when we think about sin and the guilt that you're carrying in your heart. But I'm here to tell you today that if you're still weeping about your sin, your theology needs a little bit of help. Your theology needs a little bit of growth this morning. You need to come to a new place. You say, well, I, I know that he forgives me, but I still live 
with weeping so quickly about how bad I am. Or I'm not weeping, but I'm making excuses all the time. All the time making excuses for not living how I ought to live. And then I tell myself and I let the accuser in and, and accuse me of, of who I've been in the past and where I've been in the past. I just live in this, this veritable weeping state. And the people, the, the teachers come to the people and say, okay, it's time to get over all that. Can I say it to you? Can I look you in the eye this morning and tell you something? It's time to get over all that. It's time to repent of that sin and leave it in the past. And it's time for what you know to be true about God, that he is no longer holding that sin against you, affect your heart. Because you know what happens when you believe it and then it sinks into your heart? He draws you into this relationship with him where you look him in the eyes and you know that the God of gods, the king of kings, is no longer holding you culpable. He is no longer holding you guilty of that sin. He is releasing you from a past. This is not a day of weeping. This is a day of rejoicing. The joy of the Lord is my strength because who you used to be is not who you are today and it's not who you're going to be tomorrow. Is that where you're at? Listen, it's okay to start with tears, but don't think that tears is the goal of revival. It's not. The goal of revival is your heart knowing Jesus Christ. It's your heart knowing the word and it's God's people in general serving the community, which we're going to look at in just a minute and absolutely making a difference because we're forgiven. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And so if you're only weeping, it's time for you to repent, turn away. Listen, listen, if you're still in that sinful pattern, of course you're still weeping. You got to put that stuff away. You need to come clean with a brother and say, man, my private life is still a mess. I love Christ. I am forgiven. I, I, I'm repenting of that sin, but I'm having a hard time getting victory in this area. And we need to have relationships with one another where we're helping each other toward victory. So we receive this acceptance and this oneness that God offers when he reconciles himself or he reconciles you to him. The joy of the Lord, so I'm kind of characterizing this, what is this joy of the Lord right now? It's a full recognition of your sin and God's forgiveness of it. The joy of the Lord flourishes with a clear understanding of God's word. Are you coming to a clearer understanding of God's word? Clearer today than it was yesterday? That's the goal. And that's what was happening here. Back in verse 8, they read from the book, and they gave the sense of it. They chopped it up so the people could understand it. They, they fed it to them. Look at verse 12. All the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make, what? Great rejoicing. Why? Because they understood the words that were declared to them. You're understanding the word more and more. That means you're reading it more and more. Is that true of you? If not, you may not be walking in the joy of the Lord. And if you're not walking in the joy of the Lord, you may not have the strength of the Lord. And if you don't have the strength of the Lord, I'm telling you what you're characterized by. You come to the word, you don't understand it, you feel weak all the time. And you live from Sunday morning to Sunday morning. And in the middle of your week, you're not sure what to make of God. And if that's where you are today, I'm just, I'm just asking you to devote yourself to the word, to come before the Lord and ask him to move in your heart, to ask him to teach you, to turn off some of the stuff that you have on in your life 
so that you can come back not to what Facebook says about the word, not to what your friend says about the word, not to what you heard three weeks ago about the word. The word is available to you, my friend. There are Bible studies and people studying the word in this hour, right now, studying the word to make it alive and to help you learn it so you can feed yourself as you come before the Lord and then bring a gift to others, a changed life, understanding what the word says because you're devoted to the word of God. His joy brings strength. Third aspect of this joy of the Lord is a deeply held conviction that God is sovereign over all things. So there's a past, present, and future. And God is at work, right? And let me just say it this way, that the joy of the Lord is a deeply held conviction that God is sovereign over the election. The joy of the Lord is a deeply held conviction that if whoever the next president of the United States is, everything's going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. Now, we sang the song earlier. We have Christian brothers and sisters around the world who have bodies broken. They're killed for their faith. Am I telling you that it doesn't matter who's the president because what's the big deal? No, no, no. I'm telling you God is sovereign. I'm telling you you can have joy and a bad president. Right? I'm telling you you can have joy and live in the modern real world. That's what we're called to do. Have both joy and realism at the same time. The joy of the Lord is your strength because you have a deeply held conviction that God is sovereign over all things. Joy brings incredible unity in the body of believers. Here, you can see people serving each other. You know what I love about this passage? Okay, we're all fired up. We've we've got a revival going on here. We've spent six hours with the word of God. Come on now. What should we do? What should we do? Uh, Go home and eat supper in holiness and purity. If you've got extra food, share it with somebody who's not ready for this. It's the heart of God. I've got all this spiritual fervor. Listen, live an ordinary life of faithfulness to the Lord. Spend time with him and seek him and know him. But the reality is the normal thing that happens when God does this is he gives you an opportunity to serve your neighbor and share supper with somebody else. Is that not a beautiful truth in this passage? Hey, Nehemiah, hey, Ezra, we're all fired up. What do we do now? Yeah, go home and make supper and just share, share your stuff with the, your neighbor because if they don't have enough, you're going to be the answer to their prayers today. Beautiful. The joy of the Lord uh, is, uh, brings incredible unity. Here in Nehemiah chapter 8, in Acts chapter 5, I'll just give one other example, Philippians chapter 2, where Paul said, uh, I've got joy, but you'll make my joy complete if you walk in unity. So you see the connection between joy and unity. When I have the joy of the Lord, I have unity. I'm not ripping on people. I'm not ripping on other believers. I'm not ripping on their their way of doing it. I'm not ripping on their way of thinking. I'm not ripping on their kind of music. I'm not ripping on their kind of culture. Not. Because the joy of the Lord brings unity and we realize that there's all different ways to serve him and all different ways to love him and all different ways that people come to to faith in Christ Jesus. The joy of the Lord brings peace, calm. If you are anxious, full of anxiety in your heart, always keyed up, afraid of the future, look look what uh, Ezra would say to you. Verse 9, 
stays holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept. Then verse 10, the end of it, do not be grieved. Do not be grieved. And then verse 11, the Levites, what they do? They calmed. Calmed all the people. Calmed down. Calmed all the people. by saying, be quiet. For this day is holy. Do not be grieved. So here's some, self, some helpful questions for me that I asked myself this week. Do I have a pattern of sin in my life that I'm living under the weight of? Do you have a pattern of sin in your life? Maybe it's your mouth. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's an addiction. Because listen, if you have a pattern of sin in your life, you will not have the joy of the Lord. They, can't, they cannot coexist. And that means you will be weak and you will ask yourself constantly, why am I so weak? Put away your sin. Get a friend to help you put away your sin. Go to the Lord and put away your sin. Do I understand the heart of forgiveness? That is that God is not only not holding it against me anymore, he's inviting me into relationship with him. I understand not only that I'm forgiving, I understand what it looks like to walk with God in a forgiven state. He accepts me and receives me into his presence. That is awesome news. Am I growing in my understanding of and application of the word in my life? That, that will be characterized with the joy of the Lord. Am I growing in my understanding of the word of God? Am I growing in my application of the word of God in my life? That's the joy of the Lord. Do I delight in God's sovereignty? Has this delight brought peace and calm to my heart? The body they may kill. But you can have peace and delight despite that. Do I rip on other believers for their personality, their convictions, their worship style, their preferences? If you rip on other believers, you are forfeiting the joy of the Lord and the strength that comes from it. Just are. Am I in a constant state of weakness, unable to choose strength? Now listen, all of us go through seasons of weakness. Okay? I'm not here to heap guilt on you if you're in a season of weakness. I'm here to, to give you hope to say, listen, cry as you need to cry. Weep as you need to cry. Weep as you need to weep. But let a friend come alongside of you and encourage you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So finally, uh, under this, his joy will bring us strength. There's a corporate obedience that comes uh, as we just seek the Lord together. When I get the joy of the Lord, what should I do? We should serve each other. We should reestablish a faithful pattern. You look, they're reestablishing this feast of booths here in these last verses. We are reestablishing a faithful pattern together as a people of the Lord. Revivals produce a season of great productivity, including in the marketplace. After great revivals, we see hospitals started. We see educational wings started. We see people starting businesses. And it's not that revival brings money. It's that revival brings service to others. Revival brings a love of people. Revival brings an opportunity to serve. And we take advantage of that. And then finally, in this last couple verses, his faithfulness. Uh, is, will be recognized. So when God brings revival, we're all going to see that what he's done in history is be faithful to his word. 
There'll be no doubt about that. We'll remember what he said in the past. We will be united in what he says in the, in the present. And we see here the Feast of Booths. We are united in this. The second day, the heads of the fathers of household and people with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that they should be doing the Feast of the Booths. Uh, just to give you a little background real quick, and we're just about done, so hang with me for three more minutes, okay? Uh, the Feast of Booths was this moment when they were delivered from Egypt and they were wandering in the desert for a long time and God always took care of them. And so the Feast of Booths was established after that with Joshua. It hasn't been observed now in a thousand years since the time of Joshua. But the idea was every year we would put up these booths, these, these uh, plants. We would live under these plants for a week to remind ourselves that when we wandered in the desert, God was always faithful to us and he always took care of us. That's the Feast of Booths in a nutshell, okay? And so the people said, well, aren't we supposed to be doing this? It says it in the Bible. And Ezra said, well, yeah. And they said, okay. First thing we're going to do is do what the word says we should do. We are going to observe the Feast of Booths. And that's exactly what they did here. And they they were united together in obeying the word together. And then they were... They were preparing for a future uh, where God would continue to bless. Guys, what, sh- what should we do in response to all this? I'm just going to give you a couple of real quick suggestions, things that the Lord's laid on my heart to be doing this week. Number one, pray for revival. Pray that God sends a supernatural movement of his spirit, not only across the United States of America, but around the world. Pray revival. Pray that God would, would pour, would open up heaven and pour out his spirit. Not in some supernatural, not in some weird way, like revivals, You've, we've all heard of revivals, like weird things going on, not like that, but, but where his people would return to holiness. His people would return to his word. Pray for revival. Number two, prepare. We saw here that Ezra was prepared to teach the word when revival came. Are you? When no one's looking, less time on your hobbies, more time in the Word. Less time in the stuff of this world, more time in the stuff of the next world. Less time killing time and more time investing time for God's glory. Prepare yourself for that day. Be living it out. Ask your wife, ask your husband, do you see the character of Jesus in me? If not, why not? Right? Prepare yourself for that day. Thirdly, pray some more. I cannot emphasize enough that without prayer, we aren't going to see revival, guys. God's going to give revival in response to his people crying out for that need. Seek his face. Clearly teach your children what the Bible says by first showing them your changed life. Showing them that you, you believe the Bible. You believe God's promises. You believe he is good. You're not afraid of the election. You're not afraid of the future. You're good because you believe in the sovereignty of God. Ezra would like it if you did that. And then finally, don't just weep about your sin. It's time to actually repent of it and receive the forgiveness. To believe that God is no longer holding it against you in Jesus. That's my final suggestion. I long for us to be positioned for a day 
when the Lord will send revival. But today we say with one another, my friends, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Let's stand and be dismissed. Father, help us. Help us, we pray. We need help, and we know we need help. We don't know how much we need help. And so we're dependent on you, and we, we pray for help. We, we ask that you would, across this world, pour out your spirit in a profound way, making people uh, aware of who you are, helping us see your faithfulness in the past, preparing us for a current day where you are just, gonna, you are just going to absolutely own us, have us for your own, where we are going to repent of sin, where life and death matters in this world are not as important, but the things of your kingdom are more important. We pray that you would do a great work. We pray for our children, Lord. Some of our children are away from you right now, and we absolutely pray that you would have your, put your hand on them and draw their hearts back to your heart. Help us, Lord, to show our children and to show our neighbors and to show our spouses a life that is first devoted to you, where they can see by the way we live that we know the word and it's coming out in us. And Lord, send revival, we pray. Send revival. Do it again, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.